Uh, who here knows Wes Anderson, the director? Yes, Grace, my sister, is a big fan. There's only a few of you. Um, this is Wes Anderson. He's a filmmaker. He made movies like Isle of Dogs, which was out recently, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Mr. Fantastic Fox, if you know them. Um, he was interviewed on this website, The Talks, and I love reading the interviews here. Uh, and he was asked this question, Mr. Anderson, do you see your films as self-contained worlds where you are in control of everything? And he replied saying, it's probably true. I think there is some psychological thing where some artists like to make order and organizing and shaping something gives them some kind, like to make order and organizing and shaping something gives them some kind of feeling of accomplishment. Now, that response in itself, uh, I thought was really insightful. Because you see, when, when they shape and they organize and they give order, they, they feel accomplished. Filmmakers, they go into this, making a film, they have this vision. They, they're given a budget, they're given a film crew, they're given actors. And their role as a filmmaker is to create in itself a, a story. They're storytellers, aren't they? And that's why we love going to the movies, why we love watching films, because we love following a story. Now, as, as Wes Anderson has insightfully stated, there's this feeling of accomplishment as well when an artist gets to, to make order and, and organize and shape something and express themselves. I know many of you guys here are artists, whether you're, 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 you draw or sketch or whether you're, you're an entertainer of some sorts, you, you're art, you, many of us here are artists. Now, I me, mean, I'm not a filmmaker like Wes Anderson, but I've dabbled with Windows Movie Maker. You know, when I was... 12 years ago, um, it was great. I, you know, there was all these Lego images that I used and I put on voices and accents. And people didn't even know it was me, right? Now, this was before the Lego movie came out as well. But, you know, I get it. I get that sense of accomplishment, you know, when you create and order and organize and shape something from the materials you're given. You know, I think we all feel that sense of accomplishment when we, when we bring order to the world around us, in the, in the chaos around us. Uh, many of you know right now, for me, it's currently shaping this void space in my home. You know, a couple of beautiful armchairs from Gumtree, some IKEA picture shelves, a, a rustic coffee table given to me from a friend, and the final touch, a whole variety of beautiful and chic indoor plants, right? I'm currently obsessed. But, you know, people have said I've gone crazy, but I've created this space, right, that I can now relax and, and read and enjoy. There's this, this, this sense of accomplishment in us when we can create and bring order out of chaos in the environments that we live in. Now, I understand not everyone here might think of themselves as creators, but we appreciate creation at least, don't we? I mean, we go to events like what we did a few weeks ago called The Collective, where we, can, where we got to watch people create music out of voices and instruments. We travel around the world to marvel at the wonders of human invention and, and think, how do they build this stuff without technology? You know, we hike up mountains and we descend into waterfalls to, to marvel at the majesty of our natural world. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why are we like this? Why is this in our nature as human beings to want to create? Why are we drawn to parts of creation that's beautiful, powerful, or innovative? Why are we problem solvers? Or why are we social justice activists or, or who, who want to bring order to the chaotic world around us? And what we're going to discover here in Genesis 1 today and next week, that part of the answer lies in the God who creates us. And as we observe the world around us and how it's been created creatively with order and purpose, it reflects the nature of the God who is behind it all. And Genesis is where our story begins, and we're going to discover that our story really is less about us and all about God. And as the church and as Christians, our, our journey through the next uh, 12 chapters of Genesis is going to help us create a good and, and right foundation for our faith. 
and actually helps us to understand themes that come up later in the Bible as well. You know, I know many of us just want to read the New Testament after Jesus comes into the story, but what Genesis does and what we're going to do in the next eight weeks is see the foundations, the beginnings of the great story, really, in the gospel of Jesus. This is where we're going to start, the beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of our world and history. And now before we go on further into the text of Genesis 1, I know there are many here who, who aren't Christians, and it's great that you're here. So I want to address a few preliminary things. This is for the Christians as well, who often have questions on this. We're all going to approach Genesis 1 with different lenses on. You know, already I've presupposed that the way we are as humans presume a designer, presumes a designer and creator behind it. I'm a Christian, right, who believes in God. So I'm going to have those presuppositions to the way I approach the text, the, the world around me as well. That's my worldview. Many of us here who are Christians will see our world through that lens. But that isn't to say that science doesn't have a place in our world and how it's created. Like I said, how does evolution fit into the picture? Or some people ask, are there seven days of, are those seven days literal seven 24-hour days, or does it mean longer periods of time? Is the earth really old or is it young? Amongst Christians, we're going to have different views as well on how we see how God created the world. But ultimately, the Christian faith needs to rest on the same conclusion. God created. Now, I have, I have friends in the church who hold differing views to me, and that's okay. Members of here, our church here at Providence will hold differing views, and that's okay. What I hope for as a church community at Providence is that because of the gospel of grace and love and unity that we know in God, we'll strive to love and be gracious to one another and have gracious, respectful conversations, even if we have differing views on this, okay? Now, on that note, we can all acknowledge that in, in today's world, science and evidence matters. Um, if you don't know, I studied a law degree back in uni, and you can't be a good lawyer without uncovering the facts. Um, but also, we as a human race, we've gained new information to the universe around us. There's been some amazing discoveries, so we can't just discount science. Science gives us many good things in our world, like, like medicine and technology, technology like Facebook to share memes and cute puppy videos, right? That's good stuff that science has given us. At the same time, we can all agree while science gives us theories on how the world works, there are many questions science, science can't answer. Um, the purpose of our existence, for example, is one of those questions. Now, for me as a Christian, that, that's, a, that's an easy answer. I look at the scientific world around me. I can observe how, how gravity works, the expanse of our universe in numbers and diagrams, and that evolution plays a role in the world around me and attests that there must be a God that created it all. As we approach Genesis 1, let's not see it in conflict then with science, but that it can coexist and even be a, a foundation for science. I love the Bible and I love the Word of God and I hold it in high esteem. And so we want to see it as the supreme authority over our lives. We want to see how God speaks to us through it. And so as I see the data, the science given in the world around us, it's, it's, it's humbling and it's wonderful and how complex and massive our universe is. Um, one of the things I did this week, a lot of my time was spent reading into quantum physics, <laughs> law of relativity, why people believe there's a multiverse and stuff on the Big Bang. And let's be honest, it's, it's a lot of stuff that I still don't understand. But um, it was riveting research. It was overwhelming, but it was riveting. And as I read through this stuff while I read through Genesis 1, science is trying to answer the how questions of our universe. But when I read Genesis 1, it's answering the who and the why. Now, let me give you a quick bird's eye view into why this is the case for Genesis 1. I really want us to have an understanding of how, um, how this is structured to help us understand what it's saying, right? 
it takes a bit of understanding the original text. So I'm, I'm looking at the Hebrew as I'm preparing this, and that's something that I had to learn, like written Hebrew, which is crazy. It's really hard. Ask Megan. But Genesis, wait, don't ask me. She thought it was easy. Genesis 1.1 1, 1, um, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like, look at it on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten words there. In the original Hebrew language, those words are only seven words. There's only seven words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what happens throughout the rest of the chapter is the number seven keeps popping up and multiples of it keeps popping up. The second sentence in Hebrew has 14 words. Earth is mentioned 21 times, multiple of seven. Heaven, also 21 times. God, 35 times. And it was so, seven times. And, and the obvious one, we're told, is seven days, right? The world was created in seven days. Now, throughout the whole Bible, when seven comes up, it generally has to do with this idea of completion. God has completed something. There's this idea of completion there. And you'll see it a lot in the book of Revelation in your Bible, so the final book of the Bible. And that should blow your mind already, does it? Not blow your mind. It blew my mind when I read that. As you read through it in the original language, it seems a lot like, in the literary sense, a, a song or a poem, doesn't it? it, it then a historical narrative. But there's... And that's not the only time it happens in the Bible. There are many times where it come, there is the song first before you read the historical detail of that song. So that's, a, that's already a bit tricky, but there's also the logical reason as well why it's a bit tricky, because how is it that light and darkness is created on the first day, but then on the fourth day that God creates a big light and a little light, right? Wasn't there light already? Why does another light have to be created? But then how is it that on day three as well, that there's vegetation and plants and trees were created? But you go into the next chapter, which we didn't read, verse five, chapter two, verse five, before Adam was created, it says there were not yet any trees or plants on the earth. So there's a bit of a logical, tricky problem there to, to interpret, to understand. Now for me, as I read all this stuff, that leaves me with at least a possibility, doesn't it? Could it be that chapter one of Genesis is written more like a song than a historical narrative of how the world was created. You see, when I peel back a few layers and see it in the original language, I'm left with something more in, in, the, in that form, uh, like a poem or even a spoken word piece, right? That, that tells us that this creation account is told in a way to depict, to depict the, the beauty and the order of the God who creates, rather than explaining to a, a 21st century crowd how it works scientifically. I don't know if I've convinced you on that, but understanding the genre really tells us something of how we're to read it, to understand the text, and more than anything, it's answering the, the who and the why, more so than the how. So when we come to Genesis 1 now, we come to it on its own terms. It helps us to get a richer meaning, and we can begin asking the right questions. Now, I've told many of you guys how we read the Bible here. It means we understand the, the context who was it written to? Who wrote it? Who was the original audience it was intended for? Asking these questions is, is part of what makes good Bible interpretation. The general consensus for this book of the Bible, Genesis, is that Moses wrote um, the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, and it was written to, a, to the Israelites 2,000 years before Jesus even showed up on the scene. Now, if it was written to this crowd, do you think they had the same questions as us? Do you think that Moses was trying to answer whether a multiverse exists or how quantum physics works? He's actually telling them about a God who creates. So let's keep that all in mind, right, as we discover who this God is in Genesis 1. Firstly, what Genesis 1 tells us is that God exists. 
and he's always existed where nothing else existed. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is one God who has always existed. Why is that important? Because there are people amongst the Israelites at the time who believe in many gods. Some of the, the ancient Near East religions around Israel, they believe that the world began because a god called Marduk went to battle with another god called Tiamat. And, and Marduk tore Tiamat, she was a goddess, tore her in two halves and her, her carcass became the sky and the ocean. That was the, the ancient story that people believed in, the, the mythology. Myth the mythical story that was in the surrounding cultures. But then you also got the Egyptians around who, you know, they believed in many gods as well. Um, they, they worshipped animals and, and, and the sun and the moon and the stars. There were, there were all these different nations around Israel worshipping created things, the creatures. What Genesis 1 tells us from the outset is saying there is only one God. And this God existed before everything else. He is independent of creation. God himself isn't in the creation. He, he created the creation. And now when you watch Avatar again, if you ever watch that again, with the blue people, right? What do they do? They, they connect their hair to the trees and they're, they're worshipping, essentially, a mother nature. And that's what we'd call pantheism, the idea that God is in the rivers, in the trees, in the earth, the mother nature idea. But we as Christians, we believe in a God who created nature and the earth. He's not in creation. He's... He created nature and the earth. And to show how powerful this God is, we're told this God created out of nothing as well. Now, if you want to learn some Latin 101, ex nihilo, E-X-N-I-H-I-L-O, ex nihilo is a phrase for this, out of nothing. I've got a friend, a, a Korean friend in Sydney. Every time he takes a picture of um, the ocean or a mountain, he always hashtags ex nihilo. Because, of, because for him, it's this reminder of, of the God who creates out of nothing. He doesn't need to, to go to battle and tear a goddess's carcass into two halves. The God we know through the Bible is described as the one sovereign, powerful God who has the majesty and power and control to create out of nothing the universe we now get to enjoy and live in. Now, for me, that just sounds logical. I, you know, if God couldn't do that, it wouldn't make him God. But this actually should blow our minds because when we, when we as humans create, it begins with a vision. It takes materials or ingredients to make music. We need notes. Uh, we need voices and instruments to make art. We need pencils and brushes and a canvas to create a cake. I'm told you need milk, eggs, flour, and chemistry tells me that you need heat as well to make flour rise. That's amazing. But God, God on the other hand, right? Ex nihilo creates out of nothing. He speaks and, and things come into creation. It's merely from the power of his word. In the words of the, the US pastor, New York pastor Tim Keller, he speaks and chaos becomes the cosmos. Wow. Right? And when, when we say God creates, he really does a good job of it, doesn't he? You know, I, don't think, I don't think Shane could have designed it any better. You know, he's talented, but the God we're told of in Genesis 1 is this sovereign God who creates powerfully. But God also creates in a way that shows his wisdom in order as well. See, as we skim over Genesis 1, we're not going to go too much in depth because it's a long chapter. What else do we discover? From days 1 to 3, God creates forms to the formless. God creates the day and night. Day 1, he creates the sky and waters on day 2, and the land and vegetation on day 3. And so what do we see in day four, five, and six? On day four, we're told he makes lights for the day. 
Day five, we're told that he fills the skies and waters from day two with fish and birds. On day six, we're told he fills the land, the empty land, with animals and humans. Do you see that? Do you see the form he's filling? First, he creates forms to the forms, and then he fills those forms with stuff. There's something poetic about that, isn't there? There's some, sort of, there's some sort of order to this, isn't there? It's not chaotic. He actually has this structure that he's, that he's going with as he creates, that we're told, anyways, that he creates with. There's, there's a wisdom in a specific order in the way he creates. And we can observe that around us, too. The universe we live in is wisely ordered. The reason a lot of people ask me why I love indoor plants right now, besides that they're beautiful. The reason why I got obsessed with indoor plants because, is because it began with this article that I read about how plants inside the house help filter the air and it's good for your allergies. And I have lots of allergies. So I thought that was amazing. But think about that. Plants produce oxygen. Isn't that amazing? Don't ask me how it works. But consider with me. Consider with me more about how complex and fine-tuned our universe is. Now, this is high school science stuff that I had to look up on Google again. But think about how our solar system works. We have this big, giant, burning ball of gas in the sky that we call the sun. It's about 150 million kilometers away from the Earth. You know, in a 24-hour day at the center, the, the equator, the Earth spins on its axis at about 1,670 kilometers an hour. And it's orbiting around the sun and we're going at 107,000 kilometers an hour. I don't even feel it. You know, and that's, that, the world is spinning. Yeah, that's what space.com told me. Now, if our Earth was any closer to the sun, what would happen? We'd be all burnt. We'd be all burnt, like the garlic bread I cooked the other day. If, if we were any further from the sun, our, our beanies and our thermals wouldn't give us enough protection, wouldn't save us. We'd be frozen. Either way, that there would not be the right conditions for life on Earth. That's amazing. That's, and that's high school science stuff. The other day, Owen, one of our members, he sent me this article, and he thought it was really interesting too. It talked about how we can see solar eclipses in the sky, right? And, this is, and the article was bamboozled by this. It spoke about how the sun's diameter is 400 times larger than that of the moon, but the sun is also about 400 times further away from the Earth. And so the sun and moon nearly appear the same size as seen from Earth. And the article finishes, what are the odds of that? No one knows. That's how it ends. <laughs> That's how the article ends. It's just, it's just that way. It's amazing. Now take that all into account. In the universe, where these tiny living beings that need oxygen, which is created from trees that can only survive with the right temperatures of heat and cold on a spinning planet that's spinning around a giant burning ball of gas. But not even that, the, the amount of complexity seen in the human body and how it all works in a world that is ordered. It really, wow, it befuddles me. <laughs> you know how created and complex and ordered our universe is, how it, some people will say it's an accident, a result of random, a one in a billion trillion chance that there is life. And so there are professors in universities now who, to explain how this can be possible, is that we're just one of an infinite number of universes. We're part of a multiverse. I don't know if you guys have heard this theory before, right? But one in a million trillion chances we haven't exist in an ordered, fine-tuned universe. You know, the first time I came across the idea of the multiverse was in an X-Men comic, an Avengers. You know, they, they adopted this years ago. But this is what the professors of universities are saying now. And this is where it puzzles me. 
You're either taking a step of faith to believe that there is a God who designed an ordered, creative, complex universe, or you take a step of faith to believe in a hypothesis called the multiverse. The the late, well-known American physician, Lewis Thomas, he wrote this, I cannot make peace with the randomness doctrine. I cannot abide the notion of purposelessness and blind chance in nature, and yet I do not know what to put in its place for the quieting of my mind. You see, when we, when we move into the, the realm of no creator or no designer behind our universe, we're left with even more questions, aren't we? Yet what we read here in Genesis 1 is this. The God we know is not only powerful, he's also one who creatively designs and brings order into our universe. Uh, the great philosopher Immanuel Kant said this, that the splendid order, beauty, and providence shown everywhere in nature leads naturally to a faith in a wise and great author of the world. Friends, this wise and great author is the God we get to know through the Bible. And so, so far, what we've discovered in Genesis 1 from the creation account already is God is a powerful, sovereign creator who can create out of nothing. And two, he creates with his wisdom and order. But is that how we often see God? Is that often how we see the creation around us as well? We live in a world where instead it looks messy and and often broken. God said after creating that everything he saw was good, but things don't always seem to be good in our world or our worlds. And with people like like the Black Eyed Peas singing, people are killing people, people dying, children hurt and hear them crying. It's easy to think, isn't it, that, that God has abandoned the world he's created. This is the third thing I want us to take away today. God doesn't only create and creates with wisdom and order. He maintains and sustains his creation as well. One of the phrases repeated again and again throughout chapter 1 is, And God said. Why? You see, the word of God is there in chapter 1, and it's repeated for us to really emphasize how powerful his word is. It is the agent of creation. But this agent of creation, the word of God, is more than just a, a voice in the sky. The word of God is, is part of who God is. He makes up what you might have heard, the, the triune, the trinity, the triune God that Christians believe in who continues to maintain and sustain creation. The word of God comes up again in our Bibles in the New Testament, in John chapter 1. I've got it on the screen for you. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And verse 14, further down, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. You see the word of God, that's Jesus. Jesus was there at creation with God, the father and the Holy Spirit, all functioning together in the creation of the world. And we turn to Colossians 1.15 in the New Testament as well. And it says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And get this, in Him all things hold together. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that... Oh, you know, to see John in his gospel and Paul in this letter, they wrote about Jesus and they believed this great truth. Jesus was the agent of creation. He is the living word of God. 
And so what we see uh, throughout the text of the Bible and in our own lives too, we see a God who's majestic and, and, and powerful and can create the whole universe at the, the sound of his voice, it is through his word. But we also see a God who is intimate and personal, who's walked amongst us, who revealed God to us through coming into our world, and that's in Jesus. You see, God isn't just some God who's some intelligent designer. He's not just some watchmaker, right, that just winds up the watch and lets the universe play out on its own without any involvement. When we read about Jesus, we're told in him all things hold together. He sustains and he maintains the creation we live in. He allows the elements to continue doing what they're doing. He allows humans to flourish in societies and gives us natural environments to allow that. And the earth continues to spin at the right distance from the sun and we're given rain for water and oxygen to breathe. And wherever we read about hope in humanity being restored, humanity shows elements of the creator God as they were designed to do. You see, all things hold together in our world because we have a God in Jesus who holds it together. And although our world might not, look, not always look good and that there's, a, there's often disaster, death and disease, we can trust that Jesus is the God of providence who cares and governs, who actually who has a plan. And we saw that plan in, in, through the word of God himself, dying for the brokenness of our world so he could restore it to be good again one day. And wow, isn't that ironic? The word of God himself was silenced on the cross. The word of God who creates dies at the hands of creatures he created. But this was the providence of God unfolding. That Jesus' death and resurrection was purposeful. So that you and I could flourish with God as God originally designed us for. Jesus, the word of God, restores us back into a relationship with the creator as it was originally intended. You see, when God says it was good, that's exactly what God wanted. A world that sees humans as the pinnacle and marvel of his creation in relationship with him. A world where humans could reflect God's glory in our gifts, in the way that we create, in the way that we use our talents and our, and our skills and our minds, in the way we can just simply appreciate the universe around us, appreciate the beauty and marvel at the creation. When we do that, we recognize the, the powerful God who, who wisely brings order and creates a world for us to flourish and glorify his name. Psalm 19 verse 1 got on the screen for you as well it says the heavens declare the glory of God the skies proclaim the works of his hands day after day they pour forth speech night after night they reveal knowledge you see the author of the psalm this psalm is doing precisely what God intended for us in his in, in the design acknowledging the God who is over and above and behind the universe we get to enjoy and live in we get to know this God through Jesus friends what does that mean for us today then well well, we can all see the goodness in creation. We can see the goodness that can be produced by creatures in our creation, whether it's the, the landscape from the top of a mountain or the paintings we see in an art gallery. We can look at the works of our hands and we can feel the sense of accomplishment in what we create. We can appreciate the works of art, technology, films, and we'll get excited. And we'll rant on about them to our friends and we'll get absorbed into the stories of the world around us. We'll get absorbed into our stories, the stories of, of vanity and needing to look buff or pretty. We'll get absorbed into the stories of wealth and success in this world, and we'll chase after it, hoping for ultimate, some sort of satisfaction. We'll get absorbed into the story of sex and relationships, thinking that they will give us fulfillment. But just like the ancient people in history who worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars, we're called not to worship those things or to think that those stories are what completes us. 
Instead, let's be pointed back to the God who created those things. See the world around you through the lens of the God who created it. See that you and I were wired in a way to actually reflect the Creator God who created us so creatively. So the story for us begins not with us being at the center of our universes or our need to be valued and loved and fulfilled, but instead that our stories begin with acknowledging the God who is the author, the designer and sustainer, the one who is worthy of worship. I don't know if any of you guys were alive in the 80s, but there was this famous astronomer professor from Cornell University called Carl Sagan, and he um, produced the 80s show, The Cosmos. And he said this, right? He's an astronomy professor. Um, we succeeded in taking a picture of Earth from deep space. And if you look at it, you see a dot, right? Earth is a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who've ever, who's ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, ideologies, uh, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Why did I read that to you? Because it was, we've got to put this into perspective, friends. Right? In the grandness of our universe, we've got to put this all in perspective. And I know you and I, we can get so tied up into our stories, but what if we could see them in light of God's great redemption story in Jesus? What if someone who asked you, what's your, what's your story, bro? And you said, well, it actually begins with God. God gave me parents who migrated to Australia or, or God gave me this personality so I'm like this now and I don't know, whatever it might be. What if we centered our lives less on ourselves and more on our Creator? We're going to dig deeper next week into what it means to be made in God's image. But for now, what will the worship of this God look like for you and for me in our everyday lives? What will it mean when the idols and the fake gods of our lives pull us to worship them instead of God? The ones, that, you know, those fake gods that promise so much but deliver so little. You see, I think in the busyness of our lives at work and study and friendships and hobbies, we often forget to stop and look to the one who gives and provides all the beauty and the, and the daily grace we get to enjoy. And so let me encourage you to stop more often. Stop and enjoy the beauty of what we have around us. Not just the birds and the trees, but even the good gifts like relationships and food and the skills and talents and opportunities. See the God of providence in your daily life and enjoy him. One of the, um, back in Sydney, when I was studying down there for my theology degree, I was at Bible college, my principal, his name's Stuart Colton, he used to do this exercise for all the first years. Every year he used to do this for all the students after one of his classes on the topic of creation. And I think we don't do this enough in our heavy technological world, but on the grounds of the Bible college, um, outside one of the lecture rooms, there was this courtyard. And in this courtyard, there was this beautiful lawn um, of Sir Walter Buffalo. Do you guys know what that is? If you own a home, you'll know what that is because you're always looking at your grass every day. Sir Walter Buffalo grass. It's really soft and really nicely textured, right? So this Sir Walter Buffalo grass was outside this lecture room. Uh, this grass is really hard to maintain and it was maintained meticulously by the groundskeeper. After this class on this day on creation, he'd strongly encourage us all to go outside and just sit down. 
lie down if you want, do the whole snow angel thing, right? And just feel the grass under the tips of your finger, under the tips of your fingers. Feel the textures, feel the softness. Look up into the trees, look up into the sky and get lost in the, in the blissfulness of it all. Look around and recognize a world so unique, so well-ordered, and give praise to the God who created it. Wow, you can just see that picture. It looks like a group of hippies just lying there touching the grass. But the exercise in itself was to indulge in the creation around us. See that the creation around us reflects a creative, powerful, and wise God who cares for and sustains his creation in our Lord Jesus. And we've called our series in Genesis, Our Story Begins, because this is where it all begins, friends. Our story begins with the story of the God who creates through Jesus. And I'm looking forward to seeing more about how the narrative of creation and the history we see in the Bible points us back to this great story that we have in the gospel of who he is, of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, we do thank you for being our creator God. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who 